Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesselin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Mercedes. We're here today with Rick Artunian, the former U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of New York and currently a partner at the law firm of Manette, Phelps, and Phillips. Rick, thanks so much for being here. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. I am very excited to have you here. We have so much to talk about, uh, especially during your time as U.S. Attorney for the Northern District. You worked on uh, border and immigration issues, uh, drug issues, uh, because the Northern District actually has uh, an international border with Canada. That's right. We have a, a 310-mile-long border with Canada, and it's very remote. A lot of it is, consists of the St. Lawrence Seaway, and uh, it presents great challenges for law enforcement in northern New York, and uh, certainly relevant today as we discuss immigration policy and terrorism and some of the things that we're most concerned about. You were appointed as U.S. Attorney for the Northern District in 2010 by President Obama. What, was the, what were the steps that you took leading up to that in your career? So I had, uh, I had been an assistant United States attorney in the office in the Northern District of New York since 1997 and worked as a line assistant and trial assistant throughout that period of time, primarily focusing on narcotics cases and violent crime cases, gang-related matters, racketeering cases. Those are the kinds of things that I prosecuted. Uh, but we, uh, the beauty of being in the office at that time was you got to experience kind of a, a whole range of different kinds of cases, so some white-collar cases, tax cases, bankruptcy fraud, immigration-related crimes. So I had a really, uh, uh, I think, a great period of training before I became a United States attorney in 2010, uh, appointed by President Obama, and I served for almost eight years, the entire term, as U.S. attorney. Now, uh, being uh, in Albany, uh, the Northern District covers Albany, which is the New York State capital. Uh, you're also involved in some government ethics uh, and corruption uh, cases. Uh, so you come in in 2010. Your office had just tried one of the one of the most prominent cases uh, that it's had here locally, uh, the case against uh, then Senate Majority Leader Joseph Bruno, who at the time was one of the most powerful. Republicans in the state of New York. So tell us about what it was like to come in to serve as a U.S. attorney and head that office right after that trial took place. So obviously that was a, uh, a very serious, high-profile matter for our office to handle. Uh, these corruption cases are very difficult. There's a lot of press uh, associated with it, a lot of public scrutiny on the cases, which I think is, is good. But um, uh, the case was uh, tried to a jury right before I became a United States attorney, and then after I took office in 2010, shortly thereafter, uh, the sentencing proceeding occurred for Mr. Bruno, and he was sentenced to a period of incarceration. Uh, but Judge Sharp, who was the trial judge who handled the case, uh, decided that in the wake of uh, a pending Supreme Court matter, the Skilling case, uh, the sentence would be stayed until a decision was handed down by the Supreme Court in that matter. And that's, in fact, what happened. The decision came down uh, later that year. So uh, in the Bruno case, you had a trial and a conviction uh, against uh, 
Joe Bruno. Then you had the sentencing, and but the imposition of the uh, sentencing was was stayed pending the Skilling case, and the Skilling case was obviously unrelated to to uh, the Bruno case. Skilling case involved the uh, head of Enron, uh, and it was a theft of services type case. But some of the issues, uh, legal issues, uh, potentially were overlapping. And so what happened in the skilling case that affected uh, your case? So the skilling uh, essentially invalidated the undisclosed conflict of interest theory that was one of the theories that prosecutors used in honest service fraud cases, a theory that um, uh, the Northern District Office uh, under my uh, predecessor, Andy Baxter, determined was the appropriate theory to use in this case, aligned most, most closely with the facts. And so so when the court uh, in Skilling uh, tossed out that theory of liability under the Honest Services Fraud Statute, uh, that uh, obviously created a, a problem uh, in terms of sustaining the conviction. And so there was an appeal where we admitted that there was error in, in the jury instructions. And, and the error was based upon not necessarily the interpretation of the law at the time, but the interpretation that the Supreme Court made of the case yeah. subsequent. That's uh, right. There was well-established right. law. There sure. was well-established law to have charged the jury the way Judge Sharp did. And, the and way it would obviously it. have been impossible to have anticipated exactly what the Supreme Court decision would have would have been. So that is exactly right. And so, again, we, uh, we examined the case and determined. We, we had to make a determination about whether, uh, under the new standard, uh, the proof would align in a manner that would make a, a jury finding, you know, probable and likely. And so uh, we looked hard at the evidence. The new standard, of course, required that there be a quid pro quo, uh, this for that. And so uh, we, uh, we worked hard with my staff, my senior staff of uh, career U.S. attorneys, uh, examined the record closely. And I uh, made the determination that the case should go forward, that we should recharge the case under the new standard. And that's, in fact, what, what we did. And so the, this issue of quid pro quo um, has now uh, uh, been raised again uh, in the, in, as it pertains to government uh, uh, service with the uh, Sheldon Silver case and the uh, Dean Skelos case both of whom went to trial, both of whom were convicted. And then we have uh, now another Supreme Court case, uh, again, unrelated to uh, the, the cases in New York, but again, covering the same issues. And uh, that's the, the case of uh, McDonald versus the United States uh, involving the Virginia, then Virginia governor. And the Supreme Court now takes another look at uh, this issue and issues another ruling um, and which has an impact on these two uh, cases here in New York. Now, tell us a little bit about what happened here in McDonald and how that impacts the, the Scalos and, and Silver cases. So once it became clear that um, uh, there had to be a quid pro quo, the, the uh, examination turned to what is an official act that would constitute the quid pro quo. And the McDonald court held that it had to be something, something uh, that was uh, specific and clear, uh, a question, a matter, a, a proceeding, a contract. There had to be some, something uh, that, that was definable, uh, not just a promise of a meeting or, uh, you know, some type of arrangement. Uh, 
things that happen kind of in the ordinary course with legislators and and public officials. And so tightened the standard up significantly and made these cases even more difficult from a prosecutorial perspective to bring. And as the Supreme Court noted uh, in the uh, McDonald case, you know, the the uh, a legislator or a, a elected representative taking a phone call, hosting a meeting, um, hosting a reception, those are all things that they'll do for constituents. And obviously there's nothing uh, uh nefarious about that. It's part of uh, what they are, are expected to do. Under the McC- McDonald cases, they have to go another, a step further. There has to be some official uh, act that they take. And interesting, in, in the reversal of the uh, Sheldon Silver case, the, the uh, Second Circuit Court of Appeals even raised the question about whether a proclamation uh, that I think uh, Assembly uh, leader uh, Silver made uh, on behalf of someone with whom he was alleged to have this inappropriate relationship, whether even a proclamation is an official enough act to constitute, uh, to, to, to match up or meet up or measure up to the McDonald standard. So uh, I think prosecutors need to take hard, hard looks at the evidence, the nature of the evidence, the, the um, severity of the conduct before they make a determination to go forward now, enlightened by Skilling and McDonald. Because these two Supreme Court cases have really uh, narrowed uh, what uh, would, would constitute, uh, you know, the theft of honest services or uh, other related charges, what, what do you need to see for there to be the so-called smoking gun in a case like this? What kind of evidence or proof would you need to see to say, yes, we've got it here. We've got the smoking gun. Well, to, to use some statutes, uh, the honest services fraud statute, for example, I think there's got to be a, a real clear official action on the part of the public official in return for some tangible payment of some kind or other benefit uh, bestowed upon the public official or a family member, for example. I think there's got to be great clarity about that. Do you, would you need to have proof that there was some communication that said, if you give me this, then I will do this? Or is it enough to say that there was this kind of circumstantial so that So, of course, circumstantial evidence is, is adequate. It's sufficient. It's indirect evidence. And I think if it, if it uh, is of a certain nature or type, it can be sufficient. Uh, Temporal connectivity, for example. Uh, When was the benefit given in relation to when uh, the official act occurred? Uh, A a lot of times, uh, prosecutors will take a look at that uh, type of relationship to make a determination, and that is in the nature of kind of indirect or circumstantial evidence. I think it's clear from the recent cases that are being tried now, the cases arising out of uh, the uh, the Buffalo Billions investigation, if you will, prosecutors are using some different statutes. And I'd note in the Prococo case, which is currently uh, uh, on trial uh, awaiting a verdict, prosecutors are using the bribery statute, 18 U.S.C. 666. And that's a uh, kind of a broader statute uh, that uh, prohibits uh, paying public officials who intending to be influenced or rewarded in connection with business transaction or a series of transactions. And so there's been a, a, 
uh, I think, uh, a, a shift by prosecutors to try to use uh, that bribery statute when they can, solicitation of bribes, because it's not clear that the McDonald restrictions apply to that at this point. And so I think there's going to be more law to develop on this issue. And uh, But, you know, I think it's Prosecutors are always going to be mindful and um, interested in bringing cases where public officials mix their private business with their public duties. And so I have said to anyone who will listen, if you're going to be in public service, you should make that your public service time. And if you want to be in the private sector, you should do so after you're out. Right. Now, when you were U.S. attorney, uh, the FBI director was Robert Mueller, uh, who is now uh, involved in a in a new uh, investigation as special counsel. Um, what were your dealings uh, with with Robert Mueller at that time? Sure. During my tenure uh, as U.S. attorney, Robert Mueller, uh, in the beginning of my term, was the FBI director. So the U.S. attorneys meet routinely with the FBI director. They meet in kind of a group setting on some occasions in Washington when we have uh, meetings. And uh, uh, periodically, the director will travel around the country and visit FBI field offices. And, and uh, my memory is that he did so here in Albany as well. I know Director Comey did. I remember meeting him with the various special agents in charge here in the Albany Field Division. And it'd be an opportunity to sit down and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation to talk about the issues that you're facing in your district, to talk about uh, how the FBI is addressing those, how they're utilizing their resources, perhaps what their priorities are. And so I found Director Mueller to be a very direct, kind of straightforward guy. He would come in in meetings and typically take off his his uh, suit coat and sit down and roll up his sleeves and just kind of, I, I said he was a tell-it-like-it-is kind of guy. And I think that what we're seeing here in connection with the special counsel investigation bears out those kinds of characteristics. He is, he is doing a, a, a remarkable job of keeping uh, his investigation from being leaked to the press, even though there's the most intense white-hot scrutiny there could be, because he realizes that you know, the integrity of investigation depends upon it being conducted in a professional manner, which means you don't talk outside of uh, the courtroom that you make your allegations in documents that are filed, that can be assessed and adjudged uh, within their own four corners. And I think that uh, in that respect, anyway, uh, it's been a, a model investigation. Well, it is really in, in this uh, age of, uh, you know, constant news and constant um, rebuttal to statements that are made, uh, the Mueller investigation has really been I think quite different. You don't hear from anyone in the Mueller investigation uh, until there's something that's being filed in court. And even then, all you get is really the court filings. Um, and so it, it appears as though they're obviously working very hard uh, and they've done a lot already um, with respect to the investigation, with the number of indictments that they've had, the number of uh, plea bargains that they've had. What is your... Um, experiences to um, how you go about an investigation that's as as massive as the the Mueller investigation is it is it a, a kind of a chipping away at uh, the outer uh, realm of the issue and then and then work your way in um, what is the what's the strategy there so it's 
clear to those of us who had done this for some period of time that he's using uh, the time-tested strategy of taking uh, a, a look at the big picture and then strategically determining how he can zero in on perhaps the main issues that the investigation concerns. And uh, this is a strategy that is employed, I think, probably daily by prosecutors across the country who are involved in large-scale investigations. I know as a narcotics prosecutor, for example, I spent many years doing big multi-defendant narcotics cases, and the same strategy applied. We would take a look at the kind of group of targets, people who we had information had been committing drug-related offenses. Some of them were higher up in the organization. Some were operating uh, uh, internationally. And uh, it required a kind of step-by-step methodical approach to develop the evidence to kind of move up the chain, move up the ladder. And I think it's very clear that that's the strategy that's being employed here. So you take a look at what is provable uh, 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 evidence against those who might be cooperators, who might have information that you can use then to kind of get to the next level, and you focus on those lower-level individuals, you bring uh, indictable charges, provable charges against them, and then you work with their attorneys to to uh, ascertain whether they might be willing to cooperate in exchange for leniency. And, you know, this is uh, something that happens all the time. Defendants who are faced with, you know, long-term incarceration want to help themselves out more times than not. And the federal law and the federal criminal justice system has strong mechanisms in place to to uh, reward those who determine that they want to help an investigation and to provide them with the opportunity subject to a court's approval of leniency. And so that's what those are the kinds of techniques that he's clearly using here. And uh, I think another thing that's important to mention is the way he's charging these cases. So there are different ways that prosecutors bring charges, and they can do so in kind of uh, in indictments or accusatory instruments that are somewhat generic, that are just uh, kind of have boilerplate language. You know, the laws don't, the law doesn't require that there be great specificity at all times. But many times prosecutors will use what are known as speaking indictments to lay out in, in great detail the nature of the evidence in a case. And that can be useful. It can be useful as a signal to the defendant that we have a lot of specific information against you and the defendant's attorney from a prosecutorial standpoint. And it, it can also be useful as a public narrative because prosecutors have to do their talking ethically in a courtroom, this is a way for them to kind of counter sometimes a, a message that a defendant or a target of investigation, and this happens many times in political cases, might be putting out in the press. They have the right to speak and to talk and to shape their message. Prosecutors are ethically bound not to do so. Right, and but it, you, you can see that Mueller is doing uh, some some very serious talking in the indictments that he has brought down, and that sends a message not only to the defendant that's named in the indictment, but also to other uh, possible defendants um, who are obviously aware of the facts and now are aware of the fact that uh, the special prosecutor is also aware of those facts. I think when you saw the indictments of those the 13 uh, individuals that were accused of meddling in the election on behalf of the Russians, that indictment put, put to rest uh, the question of whether there was uh, Russian 
meddling. Uh, the extent of it certainly is something that needs to be fully developed. But after that indictment came down, we're not hearing, well, we don't know if there was Russian meddling. Now, that indictment has uh, made it clear that there was. Even Vladimir Putin has, has not uh, challenged the, the, the detail described in that indictment. And that, I think, is quite telling. And so, again, as part of a broad strategy, I think the special counsel has determined that we need to kind of frame the larger issue, which is, you know, were Russians involved in meddling in the election? And he's determined to handle that in a separate standalone indictment against, you know, Russian targets, who it will be difficult, if not impossible, to extradite. But the nature and, and degree of evidence that he placed in that charging document is really dramatic and I think says a lot. Right. Uh, it, it naturally, it will be very difficult to prosecute them here in the U.S. because, uh, you know, Russia is not going to uh, uh, cooperate with that. But the indictment, uh, in its detail uh, and in its uh, the level of, uh, of facts that were disclosed there, uh, has served a purpose uh, in and of itself. This is important. And, I, you know, some people say, well, why would you indict? You're never going to be able to extradite. But uh, we we uh, saw this happen during uh, my tenure of the Obama administration. My colleague, uh, Dave Hickton, in Pittsburgh, his office brought a number of charges against uh, Chinese uh, uh, state uh, operators who had been involved in, uh, in hacking activities and uh, cyber crime activities. And uh, I think it sent a very important message to you know, the state sponsors of this kind of conduct and to others who would be involved that you know, we're going to call you out. Our system is going to charge you and describe your conduct. And uh, should we ever be able to bring you here before our courts, we're prepared to go forward and prove these cases. So I think it, the, the message aspect of this is certainly important. It also impedes uh, these individuals' ability to, do, uh, to travel around the globe, to do financial business with other countries. So there are consequences to these types of charges, and I think that's important to remember. Now, you said your term as U.S. attorney also uh, overlapped with uh, James Comey as director of the FBI. What were your impressions of Director Comey? Uh, director Comey was kind of a revered person in the Justice Department. He had been an assistant U.S. attorney, I think, uh, in the Southern District of New York for a number of years, very successful. And he uh, uh, then went on to become the United States attorney. He was the deputy attorney general during the Bush administration. He had uh, been a person who had moved up uh, the the latter from the kind of the lowest uh, starting point as a, an assistant United States attorney, and had always been very very successful, a very bright person, a very uh, in my judgment uh, ethical person, concerned about doing the right thing for the right reasons. I think he was well regarded by the FBI agents that I talked to and worked with, and uh, you know I mean history will adjudge uh, uh, what happened at the end. I think there, there, there are reasonable questions to be raised about the uh, handling of the Clinton uh, investigation announcement, and, and uh, that can be fairly debated, I think. Uh, but on balance, uh, we found him to be a, a very cooperative uh, partner and good leader for the FBI. Now, uh, you left your position as, uh, as U.S. Attorney for the Northern District in 2017, uh, and then you've gone to private practice, and you're a partner at Manette Phelps & Phillips. Uh, 
tell us what's the what's the the biggest uh, hurdle you've had in trying to adjust from the service that you had, the public service that you had, to going into private practice? So I, I have to, uh, I'm told by my partners, to uh, stop referring to myself as a prosecutor. So I've done that a, f- a few times uh, just because I've been a prosecutor for so long. I mean, before my 20-year term with the Justice Department, I spent eight years as an assistant district attorney right here in Albany County working for the venerable Saul Greenberg, the late Saul Greenberg, who we lost last year, who was just an icon of the legal community and a wonderful person to have learned under and trained under. Uh, But I think as I transition now into the private sector, um, you know, you understand that that, that a lot of the things that you learned uh, as a prosecutor can can become very useful and helpful to give you insight into issues that your clients face. And so... Uh, Manat Phelps and Phillips uh, does a, a lot of work in the healthcare field, and a lot of work in the financial services field, a lot of work in the media and entertainment field, and uh, at least uh, in the uh, health services area and in the financial services area, there's there's a lot of enforcement activity that goes on. So uh, it can be uh, my insight can be useful in helping the clients kind of work through some of those issues and understand those issues. So that's kind of how I'm focusing my efforts. Now, when you were at the U.S., you were uh, the U.S. attorney, you were uh, very aggressive in the area of, of health care enforcement. Uh, and in fact, although the uh, you're, you're recognized, the U.S. attorney's office is recognized, obviously, for its criminal prosecutions, there's also civil uh, prosecutions as, as well. That's something that I think not many people are aware of, the fact that there, was, there were recoveries of millions of dollars based upon the work that you, you did. Tell us just a little bit about uh, what you did in the health care enforcement. One of the Department of Justice's great priorities is to address health care fraud, waste, and abuse. And uh, because the uh, health care industry comprises one-sixth of our economy, there are tens and tens and hundreds of billions of dollars expended uh, and obviously it becomes an area that is uh, rife for uh, potential corruption, certainly waste, kind of abuse of the rules. The rules can be sometimes very difficult to understand and unwind. But uh, before my tenure, we had not done much what is known as affirmative civil enforcement work in the area of health care fraud. And so when I became U.S. attorney and started to talk to my colleagues around the country, I realized that Many of them had robust affirmative civil programs addressing health care fraud and environmental fraud. And so uh, I decided that we should do that as well. And so um, together with the help of my very capable former staff, in particular uh, Grant Jaquith, who's now the United States Attorney, he was my first assistant, and Tom Spina, who I uh, made my civil chief uh, shortly after I became U.S. Attorney, uh, we took it upon ourselves to kind of build a program. And so... Uh, I wanted the healthcare community to know that we were we were doing this because I didn't want to just pop on the scene and start bringing cases. So we actually went out and started to talk to some of the healthcare organizations and some of the providers and and payers and and said, hey, look at you know we think you should have robust compliance programs. We think you should be careful to address fraud, waste, and abuse. And uh, so we're announcing to you that we want to work with you to do that. We invite you to disclose issues that you have, and we will work with you to kind of work through them, to, to be as, as lenient as we can, as the law will allow in terms of addressing these things. And I think that I think the 
the healthcare community appreciated that approach. Uh, since that time, uh, the office brought on full-time affirmative civil enforcement prosecutors to handle these cases. They're getting looked at much more carefully. Key TAM matters that are brought by relators or whistleblowers are now being examined routinely, aggressively investigated, sometimes in conjunction with the criminal division because sometimes there's criminal conduct that's alleged that needs to be uh, examined and investigated. So uh, I would say by the conclusion of my term, we had a very robust health care fraud program recovering millions of dollars from companies, sometimes providers and, and uh, sometimes you know doctors who were engaged in in bad practices essentially and um, I think it, it's a really good thing for the district for the public and uh, I'm proud of that achievement well Rick you were very successful as US attorney I have every confidence that you'll continue your success as partner at Manette Phelps and Phillips we have a, a feature here on Miranda warnings where I'm gonna ask you to share a movie book or music that is meaningful to you that you might want to share with our listeners. Um, so any sort of, it doesn't have to be your favorite, doesn't have to be what's on your nightstand, but a movie, a book, or music, or other performance that has meant something to you. Well, uh, uh, we recently uh, in New York saw the play Dear Evan Hansen, and uh, I, I remember when we had an opportunity to get tickets, uh, my my boys said, hey, Dad, this is a good show. We should go see it. And I said, well, what's it about? And they said, well, it's about teen suicide. And I said, why would I want to go to a show on Broadway about teen suicide? But it was such an uplifting story uh, and uh, so beautifully crafted. The music was just outstanding that uh, I found it to be very inspirational. And I, you know, I think it's, again, uh, tackling difficult issues, teen suicide. Uh, we, we, we have so much going on with our young people now with the opioid crisis, uh, with the challenges that they face through social media, through bullying. These are very, very difficult issues that the next generation is going to face uh, exponentially at a greater level than, than we've even faced. And so I, I found that kind of story to be uplifting and, you know, reminding me kind of how fragile life can be. So... Well, thank you. Uh, Rick Hartunian, you faced uh, challenging experiences your whole life, and you uh, have uh, prevailed. And uh, we thank you for sharing them with us here today, and thank you very much. Great. Thanks. Great being here. Thank Thanks, you. Dave. This has been the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, for all things legal and some that aren't.